This decision by the president, let's be clear, is catastrophically stupid. It's a terrible decision. Um, it's bad for our our policy worldwide. It makes our enemies not fear us. It makes our allies uh, not willing to trust us. Welcome to the second episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. We have with us today Dana Struhl, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and former Senior Professional Staffer at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Jamil Jaffer, who is Founder and Executive Director of NSI and also the former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I'm Lester Munson, currently a Senior Fellow at NSI and the former Staff Director of said Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Today we're discussing uh, recent events in Syria and also the controversy between the National Basketball Association and China. All right, let's get right to it. Uh, the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria. It's uh, a huge event, massive implications. The execution of this has been terrible at best, catastrophic and genocidal at worst. It's been roundly condemned by both Republicans and Democrats. International observers have criticized it. Uh, Israel Netanyahu is opposed. The president has responded by imposing some sanctions on Turkey, and we'll get into those, and then kind of acting surprised that Turkey's taken advantage of the situation of the U.S. troops uh, being withdrawn. Assad and Russia are rushing to fill the void uh, left by the American withdrawal. So let's get into it. Is there, is there a, this has been roundly condemned by everyone in Washington, around the world, but is there a positive side to this? There's some polling that shows there may be some support for Trump's statements about ending endless wars and the U.S. not being involved in the Middle East. Uh, there's some other polling that shows it might be slightly more nuanced than that. But it's is this the kind of message that could actually work for the president? What's the what's is there any upside at all to this policy? Dana, let's go to you first. So because the podcast is called Fault Lines, here's where the fault line is. Domestically, polls suggest that Americans are broadly supportive of ending forever wars in the Middle East. And uniquely at this point in time, because we can hear what all the candidates in the Democratic primary say about U.S. involvement, particularly military involvement in the Middle East, they actually sound in some ways similar to Trump and also similar to former President Barack Obama, who talked about burden sharing and need, needing to lessen the military investment of the United States in the Middle East. Here's the kicker or the nuance, though. If you asked your average American how many troops we have in Syria, they would put Syria in the same basket with Iraq and Afghanistan, tens of thousands of forces. That's just not the case when it comes to Syria. Syria was a fundamentally different model. There were about a 1,000 U.S. forces that were not fighting ISIS directly. You, you could make the argument that pound for pound, those Americans in Syria were the most effective milita military operation in the world. They had a huge impact for a very low footprint. Absolutely. Also, let, let's remember that there was a huge air component to this. And this, again, was not the United States by itself. It was the United States in a global coalition with 74 other countries providing air support, medical evacuation, intelligence, and guidance, a 1,000 U.S. forces, and, and tens of thousands of a local partner called the Syrian Democratic Forces. And they were the ones taking the hits. 11,000 casualties by the Syrian Democratic Forces compared to yesterday I was going through to trying to find 
from statements out of U.S. Central Command the last time a U.S. service member was killed in the fight in Syria, and I couldn't find one. All right, Jamil, you know, normally my, my read is that normally American presidents campaign on kind of an isolationist platform. We saw Bill Clinton do it. We saw George W. Bush do it. Barack Obama did it. Trump certainly did it. But then once in office, they move to a more internationalist position. They start seeing the value of American strength abroad. This president seems to not be doing it, at least in regards to this decision. What's the what's your read of that? Is this a is this a resurgence of kind of the isolationist instinct? What's the what are the ramifications for US politics? Well, I think what we're seeing is a is a larger trend, right? It's part of this populist trend that Donald Trump wrote into office. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's a area of commonality, as Dana correctly points out, uh, between Democrats and Republicans of a certain stripe, right? I like to sort of, you know, in this era, play the sort of Barack Obama or Donald Trump game, right? So Donald Trump uh, texted the other day, um, the endless wars must end, capital E, capital W. Um, and Barack Obama in 2015 said, and to the American people, I know that many of you have grown weary of this conflict, talking about Iraq, um, you know, as you are well aware, I just support the idea of endless war. So, you know, the, the founder of the endless war theory is Barack Obama, carried into effect by Rand Paul, Mike Lee, and Donald Trump. So, all right, all right. so, so, is this a play for next year for the election in in November? Is this is is President Trump looking for? The rationale for his reelection is that what's going on here? Well, I do think in part, in part, that is the case, right? I think that he recognizes, as Dana's pointed out, that there is, you know, fifty-eight percent of the American public supports ending endless wars. Uh, they do think we're overcommitted in the Middle East. At the same time, when you talk about Syria specifically or fighting ISIS, the poll numbers go dramatically the other way, and seventy percent of the public uh, supports continuing the fight against ISIS, and even if necessary, using ground troops, although they strongly prefer airstrikes, um, and so. You know, there is this trend in the American public to be against deployments overseas. Barack Obama sort of surfed that trend, and, and Donald Trump has, you know, dove right into the surf on that one. Um, at the same time, you know, he can point to look at look at the Washington establishment, all these all these people getting so upset about this thing. Why? I'm with you, American people. Forget these Washington insiders. All right, Dana, so, you work at the Washington Institute. Why don't you The Washington react, Institute please. for yeah. Nearest Policy. So, so I agree with Jamil. I think... Trump is probably looking at what he calls or others have called the Washington blob, and they're all saying the same thing, which is you need U.S. forces there to fight this fight. But but here's the facts, and this is where so, – so Trump can say, and he keeps saying it, I'm ending these wars. I'm bringing the troops home, right, even though most Americans don't understand the nature of the U.S. military activities and what we were actually doing in Syria. But the fact is – and this is what Trump is not saying – he is not he, he has not said that ISIS is not defeated. He keeps talking about and the White House has tried to shape what he said by talking about the territorial caliphate. So what they mean is ISIS right now does not own territory. That does not mean ISIS is defeated. In fact, the the um, inspector general for the Department of Defense that looks at our activities in Iraq and Syria fighting ISIS specifically talks about assassinations, crop burnings, bombs going off every day. ISIS is not defeated. The UN just put out a report saying the same thing. I was just part of a bipartisan group called the Syria Study Group, and our first point is that ISIS is not defeated. This war is not over. So is it working for Donald Trump right now to say I'm bringing the forces home? Sure. The question is, we know ISIS still has excellent command and control. Their leadership structure is still intact. They're still able to raise a, a lot of money. They're very well funded. And their brand still has international attraction. So the next time there's an ISIS-inspired or directed attack in Europe or in the United States, this is not going to look good for Donald Trump. 
Yeah, look, I think Dana is exactly right. Uh, this is a this decision by the president. Let's be clear, is catastrophically stupid. It's a terrible decision. Um, it's bad for our our policy worldwide. It makes our enemies not fear us. It makes our allies uh, not willing to trust us. And uh, and it's it's a disaster for our war on t- for the war on terrorism, the global war on terrorism, particularly when it comes to ISIS, uh, for exactly the, the reasons Dana laid out. ISIS is strong. It is capable. They have melted, to be sure, into the background. But to the extent that they're being that some of them have been captured, they're being held by the very forces that are being massacred by the Turks, a army, by the way, a military that we have armed, right, a member of NATO uh, that we essentially gave a green light to to walk in. Now there have been a lot of debates, and you know I was on I was on MSNBC and Fox News recently with some con- contributors who were saying, well, we didn't give them a green light. We simply they were going to come in anyways, and we just moved our troops out of the way. Let me they were, they weren't going in if U.S. troops were there. Exactly. That's it, totally ridiculous. Exactly. It's a total joke. The entire reason the Turks didn't come across the border for the last two and a half, three years when they wanted to was because there were those handful of U.S. troops in the way, and they were not going to take any chance of killing an American. I mean, I think we're all hoping that there's a strategy of some kind behind this, and it wasn't just that the president got played by Erdogan in Turkey in a phone call, and there wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction to – his Trump's reaction to something a guy he kind of likes said on a phone call, right? Isn't that, aren't we kind of hoping there's a strategy behind this? I think we would love to hope so, but the reality is we've now had enough years of the Trump administration to see that there is no strategy and there's no deliberative national security decision-making process. So what happens is he's constantly making decisions by phone call or making decisions by tweet, and then his national security staff is stuck in the position of having to reverse engineer a strategy and specific projects and policies and activities to back up what the president has decided without consulting his national security team. All right, Jimmy. In your opinion, what's worse, the current decision on pulling troops out of Syria or President Obama's decision to do a weak nuclear deal with Iran that could rebalance the Middle East and give the excuse for U.S. troops to come out? Well, you know that I hate the nuclear deal and think it was a complete disaster, um, and so I'm not going to defend it. But there are reasons why I think actually this decision is worse. And the reason this decision is worse is that as Dana was laying out, we destroyed the cal- the territorial caliphate of ISIS, right? We took away their territory. You know how we did that? We did that on the backs of the Syrian Democratic Forces, as, as Dana correctly pointed out, who are largely buttressed and are made up of the Kurds. And so we've taken the very people that won this conflict for us, the territorial piece of the conflict, to be clear, ISIS is not defeated, right? But won the territorial conflict, lost tens of thousands of lives, 11,000, as Dana pointed out, and then we sacrificed them to the Turks. Well, the Turks roll right over them. That is the embarrassment and the outrage of the situation, we've we've done our allies wrong, right? They're now they're now being killed, and it and that blood that blood is on our hands. And so, as bad as the Iran nuclear deal was, as cata- catastrophic as that was, and as much as it let Iran run around the Middle East and run their policy, and by the way, empowered them in the Syria theater, and by the way, this also empowers Iran in the Syria theater and in the region. Uh, so, to be clear, it does both those things. This is worse because of what it did in terms of throwing our allies under the bus in a in a fight the president trumpets. That we won. And I'm just going to add here one of the criticisms, especially in the region of longtime U.S. partners, when the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, was negotiated, was that allies and partners were not consulted. They didn't have in, um, visibility into the decision making process, into the timelines, into the content of that agreement. This is arguably worse. Now, allies and partners, other than the ones negotiating that Iran nuclear deal, were not steeped in the details and updated or consulted before the decision and during the decision, right? But this 
is just so much worse. Nobody had a head up, heads up, not our coalition partners, not our Europeans who whose security is directly impacted by this decision it, and certainly not the It seems like even our troops on the ground weren't even consulted and this is a mad scramble to pull out in a way that, that not, at least makes some sense. Not only that, our forces don't fight ISIS themselves. What they do is train and advise the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF. They sit on bases within bases. They don't move around without the SDF. We are reliant on the SDF. So once Turkey started to invade, once that green light happened and the SDF had to shift their focus to protecting their own families and communities at threat immediately from annihilation by Turkish operations, our forces were totally uncovered and were had no choice but to get out. The only, the only one thing I would say that does sort of cut against my view that this is worse than the Iran deal is the Iran deal was a, process, was, was a decision made in a long deliberate, thought-out process. It was a catastrophic deal and a catastrophic giveaway to Iran, right, made by a well-disciplined, well-thought-out process that just came up with a bad result. In this case, the president's running and gunning. He's making, you know, making phone calls, talking to Erdogan. I think, yes, getting played. Um, and so you can at least ascribe the bad decision-making here to poor judgment on the president's part and not a, not a bad process. In the case of the prior administration, which did the Iran deal, you know, they just got it catastrophically wrong also, but through a very well-run, well-thought-out, just poor process. All right, Dana, let's talk about where the Democratic Party is on this uh, as best we can. There was a, recently a debate among the presidential candidates, pretty much to a person. They all condemned the pullout of U.S. forces from Syria. But then, you know, because of the execution has been so terrible and the consequences have been uh, have been very bad, at least the immediate consequences. So let's, but let's go well, a Tulsi, little bit further. Tulsi Gabbard. Well, right, but but she, even she condemned it. But beyond that, there there was there, there were a few uh, candidates, Tulsi Gabbard most particularly, who supported the idea of of ending endless wars, the the bumper sticker description of the Trump policy. Even Elizabeth Warren said she doesn't think in the long run there should be any U.S. troops in the Middle East. You also have Pete Buttigieg, who totally disagreed with, who took on Gabbard and said, you know, you're wrong. There is an important role for the U.S. in the Middle East. He's also against endless wars, but he sees that there's some utility in having troops there and in doing what we can to uh, continue the fight against ISIS. You also have Joe Biden, who's still in many ways the front runner, who's been around long enough that he actually voted for the original AUMF to go into Iraq in 2002. So talk about where, where Democrats are on this issue. There seems to be, once, once they get beyond the condemnation of Trump, to be a wide diversity of views here. I, don't, I am not sure that there is actually a wide diversity of views. I think that you, will, you're, it, you would be hard-pressed to find a Democrat or a Democratic contender um, for the elections next year who's going to say, I support endless wars and deep, deep military involvement that's not – equally shared in terms of the burden with other partners, governments, etc. But what they are disagreeing with is the manner of the decision. There, There is a deliberative way of withdrawing U.S. forces that would rely on, for example, diplomats in the State Department and other tools in addition to the military tool. So, so the nuance is we need to have a national security strategy that is not military first, it's military last. And what Democrats see is the Trump administration systematically taking all of those other national security tools off the table and dismantling the State Department. Jamil. Well, look, I mean, the problem here, right, is that is that Democrats and Donald Trump agree, 
right? We shouldn't have a, a strong footprint overseas. We shouldn't go fight our wars overseas against the people who come against us. We should focus on the home home front. Uh, we should we should draw down. I mean, the Democratic candidates across the spectrum, right, um, agree on that perspective. And that, frankly, was a perspective that President Obama had, too. And so they're all of a piece. This The Donald Trump policy, in a lot of ways, is a continuation of the Barack Obama policy. Pull out of Iraq, right? So pull out of Afghanistan, pull out of Syria. And, and, and he's making those things real the same way that President Obama sought to do and, and sometimes succeeded to and sometimes failed at doing. And so, in a lot of ways, there's more consistency here than there is departure. The problem is it's inconsistent with a U.S. that is strong on foreign policy, strong on national security, a leader in the world, right, and and taking the fight to the enemy before they come at us, right? We learn the lesson of drawing down, pulling back from overseas when we try to take the peace dividend uh, that we got from the fall of the Soviet Union, right? And that showed up with catastrophic consequences uh, in a variety of ways to include the 9-11 attacks. And so I predict that if we continue this policy, a continuous policy for the last decade, eight years of President Obama and two years of Donald Trump, of drawing down, leaving our allies stranded, uh, make your enemies not afraid of us. I think we will continue to see threats at home, and it, they will only get worse. All right. So I see uh, a parallel pro- a parallel positioning in both parties. I see the internationalists among the Republicans and the Democrats having a ton in common. The Lindsey Grahams and Pete Buttigiegs actually largely agreeing on the policy in the Middle East. And then the isolationists, the Tulsi Gabbards and the Rand Pauls also having large paths of agreement. So I see this not as a Republican-Democrat divide, but as an internationalist isolationist divide. But what you're saying, Jamil, is there actually is a delta between the internationalist Republicans and internationalist Democrats. Talk, talk about that a little more precisely. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you when it comes down to the divide between the two parties in the internationalist camp, as you've described it, uh, it's a question of should the U.S. use or have available to it the military arm to use and not just when attacked, right? Should we be deployed overseas? Should we be out there uh, be prepared, being prepared to defend our allies and being able to put our foot forward when we need to with our military. And yes, of course, it should be the last tool we use. It shouldn't be the first tool we use. Uh, that being said, we have to be willing to use it. And the fact of the matter is that President Obama, who purported to be something of an internationalist, right, um, was completely and utterly unwilling to use the military arm, right, unless absolutely pushed to it. Well, and so, and, he, and, he did act in Libya. And our, well, that's that. Well, we should have that. We can have that fight another day. So let's just take one more step back here and look at the reactions in Congress to the Syria decision. You have – I actually think this has been the most unifying of, in terms of bipartisanship in rejecting and expressing alarm and concern about the president's decision. Yes, the Democratic presidential candidates and yes, the fringes, so the far right and the far left on both parties are, are basically supportive of the concept of ending forever wars and U.S. military entanglements in the Middle East. Although, if you ask a different question, what do, do you want a United States that's protecting itself? Would you rather fight conflicts and respond to national security emergencies abroad or, or here domestically? Obviously, it's going to be abroad, right? Um, but there, the other continuity is 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 the Obama administration also tried to pivot. So so in during the Trump administration, there's been a new national defense strategy that said actually 
the most pressing national security threat to the United States is not counterterrorism. It's great power competition. It's revisionist, aggressive powers like China and Russia. And we need to be thinking about what conflict and, and threats look like there. So that's AI, very different air and naval uh, warfare, et cetera, et cetera. Some might even call it a pivot to Asia. Right. And that, yeah. Well, you called it. That's where I was going. So, so the Obama administration tried to do the same thing. First, it was called a pivot. Then it was called a rebalance. But the notion, the concept was we have been too focused on the Middle East and the biggest strategic challenges to the United States and protecting Americans are Russia and China. And right. we need to be – go ahead. All right. Let's, let's, let's throw let – me, let me just throw a little spanner in the works here. So the same week the U.S. pulled out 1,000 troops from Syria, we added 2,000 to Saudi Arabia. So is there – is President Trump really an isolationist? Is he really withdrawing us from the Middle East? Or is this all – is this all a lot of inside the beltway falderall where we get all confused over, uh, you know, tweets and, and whatnot from the administration while at the same time he's actually doubling down on where perhaps some would say our real interests are? The problem with the 2,000 troops and the other assets that were announced as being deployed to Saudi Arabia is the strategic messaging and the rhetoric that accompanies it is completely off because this administration over and over has made it quite clear that they do not intend to use military force to respond to the threats in the Middle East, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iran launching attack at a major oil facility in Saudi Arabia. So you can put troops on the ground. You can keep our military bases in the Gulf countries. You can add some more Patriot missile defense batteries. But the rhetoric and the messaging is that you guys are on your own. When we say burden sharing, what we really mean is it's your turn to carry the burden. Lestana is exactly right, 100%. The problem is deterrence only works if you're actually willing to use the forces you put in the area. And so the president could send 10,000 troops. It doesn't matter if he's not willing to use them. And everyone reads the cards exactly right. This president, just like President Obama before him, is completely unwilling to use the military arm of power unless absolutely pushed to it. And so, so here's what you have. You have a situation where... You know, our friends in the Middle East are saying, great, send me 2,000 troops, don't care, doesn't help. You're pulling out of you're pulling out of Iraq, you're pulling out of Syria, you're pulling out of Afghanistan. You don't want to fight these. You send the troops and tell the world you don't want endless wars. Well, what are you going to do with these troops here? Iran attacks Saudi Arabia, right, launches cruise missiles, destroys 50% of their oil capacity, and we do what? We send some troops. That is not deterrence, and it's not likely to deter Iran. In fact, to the contrary, I think that the message that Iran... And by the way, China in this great power competition and Russia take away from all these things is the U.S. is a paper tiger, talks a big game, doesn't really want to do anything and won't stand up for its allies or against us when we when push comes to shove. And just to add, put, put a bow on, on what Jamil just gift wrapped for us is that Russia and China see opportunities everywhere in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So rather than the Middle East is dragging us down when we need to think about great power competition, the Middle East now is critical to great power competition. Russia Russia is now the arbiter of the peace between the Turks and the Kurds and Assad. They're in the middle cutting the deal. Too soon to tell, but we've certainly given them the opportunity by the past week's decision. All right, let's go to the exit question on this topic, which is Erdogan. He, uh, uh, leader of Turkey, took advantage of the U.S. withdrawal. His military forces immediately moved into the void created by the absent Americans. He's moving south into Syria. He's taken advantage of the situation. Is this ultimately going to be beneficial to him domestically? He's got a little bit of turmoil at home. The economy's not doing great. Maybe more sanctions are going to accentuate that. Is this a good move for him politically in Turkey? 
So at this point in time, I think it's a great move for Erdogan politically and domestically in Turkey in comparison to a lot of other issues where Turks are divided on Erdogan's policies. This is a notably unifying action by Erdogan. But I would also say that near term, it's unifying and it has broad support over time. Let's let's remind ourselves, if you accept the premise that the YPG, the Syrian Kurds that are part of the Syrian Democratic Forces, are the same as Turkey's own U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organization threat, the PKK, these guys have had decades of experience waging insurgency, terrorist attacks, etc. Turkey is a NATO military, conventional conventionally trained and armed, and they are going into terrain that is not their own, that they don't know as well as these guys. So over time, if they don't get out quickly, what does this look like? And does it become a liability for Erdogan? I think that's a strong possibility. Jamil? I think Dana's exactly right. Again, I mean, the problem here is that Erdogan is not a trustworthy party. He's going to benefit dramatically domestically. But people forget he was the he was the leader of the Islamist Welfare Party before he recreated it in a in a in a better looking form. But let's let's tell let's talk about who who Erdogan really is. He's an Islamist, right? He is not a traditional Turkish Democrat who believes in the separation of of religion and the state. He talks about, in a lot of ways, he has a lot of themes with the president talking about the deep state in Turkey, right? The president talks about the deep state here. He has autocratic tendencies at home. The president has shown that tendency here also. And so there is some sort of, a, a, you know, a, a bromance, I think, between the two of them, as there is between the president and, and Vladimir Putin. So it's not surprising you see his play out. I mean, I think that as, as the presidency is withdrawing here and sees strength in withdrawing American troops from abroad here at home domestically, I think Erdogan sees the exact same strength deploying abroad, being shown to fight in Syria, roll over the Kurds, and even if he, if it requires it, going up against the Iranians in a conflict where the Iranians are putting forces behind the Syrians. I think Erdogan sees all benefit in this, and, and that's, and that, and by the way, the Russians see the benefit in it too, having just sold Erdogan the S-400s. A, a NATO military, by the way, that's looking to buy the F-35 and buying Russian missiles that are designed to shoot down the F-35. I think I think Erdogan should be worried about buying uh, a pig and a poke here. You know, the big mistake of the Soviets was going into Afghanistan. He's going into Syria. His guys are going to be vulnerable. It's a huge opportunity for the Kurds to take advantage of this and make him look bad back home for being weak and ineffective and not knowing how to deal with real adventurism abroad. And I'm just going to add one more thing. Yes, Erdogan constantly talks about the deep state in Turkey, but here's the difference. Turkey actually experienced a near coup in 2015, and in reaction, Erdogan removed the top echelons of his military, and they're all in prison. So he has sent the, his forces into into Syria, and the most experienced military members of the Turkish military are not there to oversee this campaign. All right, let's flex to our next topic, which is uh, China and the National Basketball Association. Two things you never thought you'd hear being debated on this podcast. Uh, A few days ago, uh, an official with the Houston Rockets tweeted in favor of the demonstrators, the pro-democracy, pro-liberty demonstrators in Hong Kong, and set off a near-nuclear meltdown for the NBA's business model with China. The NBA has a lot of investments in China, uh, a lot of Chinese watch NBA games. Uh, Yao Ming, who is a star with the Houston team, runs a basketball league in China. China immediately responded, threatened the official, made all kinds of protests. The official was compelled to withdraw the tweet and apologize. And that, fought, and then thereafter, massive criticism of the NBA for kowtowing to the Chinese, for to kowtowing to this authoritarian government, and not standing in support of pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong. 
Eventually, the commissioner of the league, Adam Silver, came out, made some good statements about values and how the NBA is not going to abandon democratic and human rights and, and values in that regard. So where, do, where does that uh, – what, what are your thoughts on this, Jamil? There's, there's a um, – uh, you know, there are real implications for other American businesses in China. This one, it's kind of grabbed the headlines because it's the NBA and there's some famous people involved. How, how is the U.S. You know, business community dealing with China right now? I mean, this is, to me, this is ridiculous, right? The idea somehow that a American exercising uh, his right of free speech talks about supporting pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong and is pilloried, pilloried, by other people in the NBA. I mean, it wasn't just Adam Adam Silver comes out and says, yeah, we support the right of free speech, but we got to balance our business interests, yada, yada, yada. And then LeBron James, King James, right, from my hometown team, the LA Lakers, comes out and attacks the Houston Rockets GM and says, you don't know how hard it is being my team in China and all that. I mean, what, it's nonsense. Every single athlete in the NBA who benefits from the fact they live in a democratic, open society should be defending the right of the democracy protesters and should be criticizing China and, frankly, being willing to take the hit on the money on this front. And the idea that these overpaid brats are out there attacking their own people for exercising their freedom of speech is ridiculous. All right. it's, it's Dana, a complete joke. Dana, let's get your take on this. Da- uh, LeBron James was known for being politically active. He made a bunch of progressive statements. He's been unafraid to be out in public criticizing issues, bringing up social justice themes, and been very out front. And for him to kind of come out in favor of a muted response to Chinese authoritarianism, is is that of concern for Democrats? What's the What are the implications here on the left side of our political spectrum? Absolutely. So, so to just contextualize this a little bit more, first of all, you have have broad disagreement with the way in which the Trump the Trump administration is it's waging its trade war with China. You have broad concern not only related to China, but very broad that the Trump administration is poor on human rights and, and basic fundamental freedoms like the right to protest. And then on top of that, there's these rumors that Trump said privately to Xi, I'll be quiet on the protests for now. And he's also expressed confidence in President Xi that that he'll handle it in some best way that he knows how, which is ridiculous. So this, again, when you look at Democrats and Republicans that are internationally oriented, have expressed concern. You have your Marco Rubios and you have your Bob Menendez's together saying, no, no, we need to be much stronger um, in support of the rights of these, these protesters. So then you get to this question of China. Is it is it so big that it can eliminate questions of its own human rights problems? For example, what it's doing with the Uyghurs in China. And again, the Trump administration only recently started talking publicly about this after after months and months, especially from from members of Congress and and the human rights community raising awareness about what was going on. And there was notable silence for a long time from the Trump administration. So all of that to say for LeBron James, somebody like that, who's been so outspoken on other issues to basically kowtow to China, I think is hugely problematic. So LeBron is basically agreeing with Donald Trump on China. It's pretty shocking. It is. It, well, what's, I think what's even more astounding is, is Donald Trump, who has decided to go after China on a, in the trade war, as Dan's correctly described, and has decided to go after athletes of the NFL for also exercising their free speech rights. The fact that Donald Trump hasn't come out and said the NBA is wrong here, the Chinese are wrong here, 
right? And he's just sort of stayed quiet. I mean, it's it's, a, it's an a, amazing sort of lack of any statement from the administration, particularly at a time when they've finally started to get, get tough on the Uyghur issue. You're right, they're way late to the party, but at least they're finally doing it. They're starting to pressurize some of the Chinese companies involved. It's the right thing to do. It's the right, the right thing for religious freedom. It's the right thing for, as we talked about in the last podcast, uh, what may be the next Holocaust happening to Muslims. And by the way, people of other religious faiths in China also, um, I, I just... I, you know, to see the complete silence from the administration on this question is pathetic. You know, and what and what an opportunity for popular culture and f- for the American popular culture to show its strength, right? The National Basketball Association has an amazing product. These are phenomenal athletes doing amazing things on the court. They're hugely popular around the world. There are half a billion Chinese folks who watch NBA games. They have a platform that is unparalleled. It's bigger than Trump's platform. And if the NBA came out in favor of democracy and human rights in China, what a difference they would make. China can't turn off the NBA. They're crazy if they think they can. The demand is huge. This is it's much like in the late 80s when it was rock and roll and blue jeans and I, you know, probably Marlboro cigarettes that helped bring down the wall between East and West in Europe, right? Isn't there a huge opportunity that we're missing here as Americans? I think so. I think there's a huge opportunity and I think this confirms for people especially on the left that it's not just about um, Trump administration silence on this issue, but about corporate interests and about money. All right. So exit question on this topic. Jamil, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Is it LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Magic Johnson. Dana? I just remember Air Jordans. I think it's Michael Jordan. I totally agree. It's Michael Jordan. By the way, Shocking I would have the Chicago and I would have accepted Jordan. Bill Russell as an alternative, but uh, uh, Magic Johnson. Like them, best don't team love of them. all time. Magic, Kareem, AC Green, the three Pete Lakers. The team Celtics. that the Bulls beat in the finals in 1991. But do okay. they vote Democrat or Republican, Jimmy? No clue. Don't care. And by the way, we should, it shouldn't matter to us, right? I mean, these are entertainers. Magic Johnson makes athletes. a lot of money. And the idea, he might be a Republican. The idea, the idea that these guys aren't defending the very thing that got them the money and got them the yep. opportunities and brought them to where they are. And that they're going to go up and protect China, defend China, it's unbelievable. Totally agree. All right. Uh, and so for our final round, lightning round, uh, let's talk about an issue that you're following that's a little bit outside the headlines. Who wants to go first? So speaking of forever wars, today is the date um, from 2001 that Congress voted for the authorization for the use of military force al- for al-Qaeda that, as you noted, uh, Vice President Biden actually voted for. Um, and that is the same authorization for the use of military force today that is the legal underpinning for our forces to be in Iraq and Afghanistan and soon no longer in Syria, but was also the legal underpinning for our forces in Syria. Not to mention tons of other countries all over the world where there's al-Qaeda offshoots and affiliates. An AUMF that I believe was 58 words long. Something like that. An amazing, an amazing document. Jamil. Yeah. I mean, look. I, I think the I think the the AUMF has has been has been critical to our conflict with, with Al Qaeda, as Dana correctly points out, still ongoing. Um, but I'm following the elections in Tunisia. Right? We just saw a uh, a, a independent law professor elected in the second free election uh, since Ben Ali uh, was removed from office uh, back in 2011. Um, it's a it's an exciting moment for that country. They're they're really coming around. Um, our friend Jody Herman, who's normally on the podcast with us, was just there 
um, doing election observation um, and uh, and has just gotten back, which is why she's not with us today. Uh, but a great a great moment for North Africa um, and for. Uh, you know this this feeling amongst internationalists that that democracy does matter, right? That democracy brings opportunities. It's a good long term play, democracy. It's, one one can only hope, and and it's true that not at not at all times does democracy work for every for every population. Uh, but it's it's a message that the U.S. should be carrying out in the world: democracy, capitalism, the opportunities that that gives. And you know we're seeing a retreat on that, whether it's the populist movement in the United States, represented by Donald Trump in the White House, um, or. Uh, the 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 way that the the way that the NBA is handling this China issue, uh, we're seeing a decline of that view that America is exceptional, that we have a role to play in the world, that we ought to lean forward, that we ought to play that role, um, and that and and you know at the same time that we're backing off of that play, you know people in Tunisia are voting for are voting for independence. And I'll just add a, uh, one point to what Jamil said, which I totally agree with. So what's fascinating about this latest round of of elections in Tunisia is that Tunisians voted to throw out the organized political parties that have dominated the scene since Bin Ali's ouster. So this is this is a new president, um, n- new parties in the parliament. And so the question is, in terms of can democracy deliver for Tunisians since the Arab Spring, in terms of the economy, in terms of the security, um, Tunisians still have a lot of work to do. And this is where U.S. assistance, not military, but some very minimal technical assistance, support, some economic aid and advocacy on behalf of the Tunisians with international financial institutions and diplomacy with other countries that are invested in Tunisia's success could go a very long way. Totally, totally agree. And in fact, 90 percent of 18, 25 year olds in Tunisia voted for the new president. So it's a real unique opportunity uh, to take advantage of this and really sort of show the power of the, that, that we can help bring to these countries. All right. The issue I'm following uh, is not Tunisia. It's Ukraine and it's corruption in the Ukraine, which is not in the headlines. I'm not talking about Giuliani and Zelensky and all of that madness. Biden. Instead, there's a there's a real issue going on in Kiev right now. Uh, the IMF has told the Zelensky administration that if they allow the oligarch who controls Privat Bank to gain control of that bank again after the government took it over three years ago, that they will cut off funding of Ukraine. It is a huge issue. It's the real corruption issue in Ukraine, and it's being totally hidden by all this uh, stuff related to impeachment. Okay, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on our second Fault Lines episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation, and be sure to tune in next time. 